Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Today, I'm talking to the brilliant Annie Collinge. Annie moves between the world of art and fashion, creativity and commerce in a way that stays true to her ethos and intentions as a photographer. For her, photography is a tool for transformation, for imagining a kind of illusion in the everyday. Encountering her work is to truly happen upon something miraculous, often a playful fantasy that is joyful yet carries a dark undertone. At the centre of her approach is the idea, and she has a meticulous, almost obsessive dedication to bringing her vision to life. In this episode, we talk about her influences, her process, the importance of knowing yourself, and what it takes to make a fantasy seem real. You spent a lot of time in New York when you were younger as well, right? Yeah, so my mother, she worked at the Guggenheim in the late 60s. She she was the assistant to the, like, director, as wow. I remember correctly. So she had quite an interesting life. So she knew a lot of artists um, and she dealt with, you know, them day to day. Like, she knew Miro a tiny bit, which is quite weird. And she would go to, like, Max's Kansas City and have, like, surf and turf and see Andy Warhol there which feels quite weird yeah she was very she was quite involved in the art world before she met my dad um and then she still has a lot of her friends still are in New York so we would go and visit them and like stay in their crusty lofts and stuff and I remember at the time being a bit kind of shocked that people lived like that but um yeah like it's it feels like the states generally has had quite a big impact on my upbringing I think and I still do it wasn't actually until I lived in New York that I really noticed how American my upbringing had been even though I grew up in England so yeah yeah and didn't your aunt set you on a set you up on a date with Bill Cunningham oh yes so (laughs) so my aunt uh, my aunt and uncle live in the East Village and my uncle worked for a long time for the New York Times he edited the style section and they're kind of quite classic kind of East Village, you know, interesting types. Um, and uh, when I was about 20, I was staying with my aunt and she was like, you got to meet this photographer. Um, 
<laughs> he's gonna I'm gonna set him up, he's gonna take you out to lunch. And I was like, Oh god, like <laughs> I don't want to, it's gonna be some crusty old guy. Anyway, so uh we met at Veselka, which is like a Ukrainian diner, and anyway, it was Bill Cunningham, and he gave me like I remember him talking a lot about hats, but at the time I had no sort of idea of the significance of it. I just was wow. like trying to get through the like embarrassing situation of like being set up, you know, for career advice I didn't really want at the time. Because <laughs> they, uh, my aunt and uncle were quite friendly with him. They would look after him. They would give him like, you know, they would bring him food and stuff. They're, they're very, they look after people a lot. Uh, mm. And I guess because I, I wasn't that aware of his, you know, his page in the in the New York Times. Obviously, this is way before the movie came out. Yeah. But I mean, I did, you know, appreciate that later. Definitely. Do you remember any advice he gave you? Did anything stay with you? Um, <laughs> I, I just remember him saying that he wasn't that interested in photography and it was all about the fashion um, oh, amazing! Yeah, which I kind of—I mean—it's sort of true when you look at his pictures. He's like actually, like you know, the way he sort of tracked down tribes of people, mm. like it, you know, observing people like that. It's not necessarily about that. I, I remember him telling me he'd been punched in the face, like for taking someone's picture, but he oh, might even talk about. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, he—he was so sweet. It seemed so cruel that that would happen, but. um yeah, no, it's just quite funny. These things you don't appreciate at the time, but now I'm like, you know, and I think when I, when I first moved to New York, I went to uh, a party with my, I was a, uh, it was about eight years later, and my aunt and uncle took me to this party in his honour at Bergdorf Goodman, and I was like, and it was so weird because he came straight up to me and said, oh, hey, Annie, <laughs> and I was like amazed <laughs> that he still remembered me after all this time. But it was quite sweet. That is awesome. Yeah. I remember being in New York and seeing him because you always saw him on his bike and that blue jacket that he always used to wear, just like cycling around looking so sweet. But every time you saw him, I felt like you saw a unicorn. Yeah. It's just like this magical, he's just like this magical guy, like completely on his own path and didn't really, you know, take any notice of what he did. I know. It's so funny, that blue jacket that he always wears, because then everyone started wearing those blue jackets, whereas that's his uniform for years and years and years. And it's funny that it became like a, you know, a fashion item. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And you've talked a little bit before about how you can trace a lot of your influences back to the books that you read when you were a kid. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you were reading. Yeah, well, my parents, they used to go to Brick Lane Market every Sunday. Um, and so they were biased. Well, partly my mum being American, I had a lot of American books in my, you know, in my on my bookshelf. Um, so, like, one of my favourites was um, Norman the Doorman, which was written by Don Freeman, who's, I think his most famous book is called Corduroy, but it's basically about a mouse that um, lives in the Met Museum and enters a secretly enters the Met Museum open art contest with a he makes a a, a, a um, sculpture out of a mouse trap um I think it's so called good. Like, I think it's called like trapeze or something and it's got like a and he like makes the wire of the mouse trap into like a mouse on a trapeze and I think it's and it was sort of like it, 
they always have this like sinister edge to it because like he's he's worried about getting caught by the guards and like being killed. Um, <laughs> so I think I've always been drawn to books that have a slightly kind of dark edge to them. Like I love Doctor DeSoto, which is by William. I don't know how to pronounce his name. William Steig, Steig, who um, he invented Shrek as well. But his his first oh no his first book was. Um, the Magic Pebble, which is about a donkey who uh, finds a magic pebble and accidentally turns himself into a stone, and then he can't, <laughs> and then he can't turn himself back. And most of the book is like his parents weeping about how he's never coming <laughs> home again. And it's like, yeah, I don't know, I, yeah. And I just remember, like, yeah, the, the the sort of menace of those books. I don't feel like when I read like books that have written now, they don't seem to have that menacing quality to them so much. I don't know. And I also liked um, a book called uh, Snuggle Pie and Cuddle Pot, which is, it was, it's, it's really old. It was written in 1980 by Mae Gibbs. Um, and it's about these gum nut babies and they're, they're based on, it's all based on thing on, on natural things. They're from the gum nut tree and they get like, they're always scared of these like Banksia cones, which are they're, they're monsters based on Banksia cones from a Banksia tree. But again, they're like there's always there was always it was always quite sinister and scary. So yeah, I so think, good. I think like in terms of how that's influenced my work, it's been very like the kind of idea of something being like childlike and kind of aesthetically pleasing, but also having a darkness to it but it can be bright brightly colored and kind of cheerful looking on one level but have like a darker subtext and I Mm. I think that's definitely I can I can sort of trace that back and I have a I've got a child now and I read him a lot of the books that I had when I was a child and it's funny because yeah because it sort of it reignites like where I sort of I can sort of trace back to why I'm interested in certain things like yeah definitely that's awesome and another big part of your kind of ideation process and your research is is your kind of sourcing or collecting objects kind of scouring car boot sales and ebay and charity shops and and flea markets and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of how it informs your idea process I mean I think I mean it's it's verging on obsessive which is quite annoying (laughs) But um, and I've had to actually stop collecting stuff myself because I think I've definitely reached the limit of all the things I need to own. I mean, I still buy things for like props that I like hold on to. Like I've got an Edwardian puppet theatre at the moment that I'm I might do something with. Um, but yeah, I think like I've never found particular inspiration from going to other people's exhibitions. Like I enjoy going to see art, but. I don't feel like it gives me ideas, whereas I can find like, I don't know, like a like I bought like an ostrich egg with a clown's face on it or like, you know, just weird things, a giant packet of chewing gum. It just it can spark more of an idea. And very often I'll hold on to things and then, you know, and then suddenly like I'll just suddenly have a spark of what I can do with it. I might have them for years, but. I think it's just like I like the idea that objects could maybe take on a like photography can give them a kind of life 
you know, like a kind of, mm. you can imagine them almost being real. And I think that's what interests me, the sort of how you can transform something to look more lifelike um, in a photograph. Yeah, it's a little bit links to that idea of fantasy in your work as well. It's like there's a sense of fantasy, but it's really grounded in reality, often grounded actually by the locations, which are often kind of domestic in, in some way, domestic and, and I guess a bit familiar. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, that's definitely very intentional because like I really like to shoot in domestic scenarios. I find as soon as something's in a studio, it becomes sort of clinical and like, I kind of think, yeah, if if it looks like it's in a house or something, you could imagine, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like, it could be real, you know. Um, yeah, like, and also that's why I don't like things either, because I, I sometimes find when you like things, things take on a kind of dramatic, like, theatrical, like, I don't know, and, and it sort of, it, it shatters the illusion for me. I like things to look kind of, mundane on some level and like I'm always like thinking I'm always trying to find like simple places that allude to domesticity like Mm. you know have carpet or a bit of skirting board or like a plug socket but that aren't necessarily filled with things but just kind of yeah just kind of hint towards a house or you know so yeah I don't know I don't I like it even if I do shoot in a studio very often I'm trying to make it look more domestic but it's actually quite hard to find those scenarios. Like I've always had these fantasies of like, you know, getting in with an estate agent and just always having like loads of empty houses to shoot in. But they always seem very oh, that resistant. Would be great. Well, I've tried whenever I do shoots, I like phone round and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it never seems to happen. Like it seems very difficult to find like. Because I like the idea that all the furniture is taken out, but you can still see that someone's lived there, you know, mm. and it, it seems quite hard to come by. Someone should do that as a location. Yeah, like the old idea. crusty houses, not like that's the thing about location houses. They're always like done up swanky. too much. Yeah, they're too swanky. They don't look real. And I think there's like there's a real there's a gap in the market. Definitely. I wanted to ask you a little bit about casting, actually, because every aspect of what you do is very particular. But the casting seems another sort of important element to that, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, it's funny because I know it's like a thing now for shooting like real people. But I feel like that's all I've been interested in. Like in the past, I've shot, you know, agency models, traditional. And I just I don't know. It just it's quite very easy to shoot an agency model because they look amazing in photographs. But I feel like I was always interested in making like art directed portraits of like unusual people as opposed to, yeah, like trying to make someone trying to make a really beautiful romantic image. That's not like what I'm interested in. It sort of ties back to trying to make things look real, like almost believable. I did this project uh, quite a few years ago called Five Inches of Limbo, um, where I made all these portraits based on dolls. But then I cast real people in the street that I thought looked like them. And I shot actually loads of extra ones that didn't work because you didn't 100% believe that it could be a real scenario. I mean, I know obviously it's not real. Someone dressed in like red goggles with like a fur stole on isn't necessarily real, but on some element I think it has to be believable 
And that's yeah. what I'm always looking for. Like you have to think that I, I want you to almost think that like I happened upon something and it has to be on some level quite natural. So yeah, I think that's what I'm always searching for when I'm making pictures. Yeah, I think that's the magic in your work. And and sort of talking back to the location aspect of it, those pictures which are grounded in those domestic spaces, you totally do feel like you just open the door and there's just something miraculous and unexpected there. They really hit that right note of like fantasy, but like really grounded in like a reality that reminds you of like your Nana's house or something. I just really love that tension. It's great. And it feels as well, I think I often feel like sometimes the industry gets a bit sort of sanitized and stifled because I think it's easy to become quite trend-led and I think there's so much weight on aesthetics now and and that being that carrying more kudos than sometimes the concept or even the storytelling and what I really love about your work is that you've always made ideas like front and center and I wondered if you can talk a little bit about how you how you develop ideas, a little bit about your process and kind of why that's so important for you. I mean, I think in some ways, like why I think my work is like people are responding to it more now than they have before is because I mean, it's partly because of social media, because I think I think quite in single images. Like when I did my degree, I remember like my degree show, all the photos were kind of single images. They they didn't have so much coherence as a project. And I think now, because how we view images, we view them singly. It's not like before there was a lot of pressure to make these projects that kind of, you know, that all fitted together and told a story. And then you could have like one picture that was just like a horizon or like a drop of water on a leaf. And then you <laughs> then you'd like turn the page to another. And like I've never really thought like that. I like I'm always thinking of like how I can make one image like about a strong idea so I think like how I come up with the process I mean it depends what I'm shooting but like yeah very often it'll start with an object and then but again like I do tend to work in single images less project based and because I find sometimes when I get like I just worry about things being repetitive and I think it's like I don't like when fashion stories use like loads of versions of the same photo it always feels to me like it waters down the idea I kind Mm. of think I kind of for me it's always just brave to use one image from that even if it's been loads of work for that one image that's the most important thing to me another element of that that we've talked about before is that you are exceptionally particular because you are creating worlds like every aspect of what's in the frame you have a very particular vision for right so you're so in terms of how you as we said before like the casting but also like the styling and the props and the space you like to be very hands-on with that almost like you're art directing your own work essentially when you're working on your own yeah definitely I mean I think that's where I've struggled to work with not no I haven't struggled because I've worked with lots of different people but I think I'm incredibly controlling and I think I've found in the past, like working with set designers and stuff, I've found that they have maybe been a bit frustrated at the level of control that I want because um, I want you know, because all every like item that's in the photograph is integral to making the image. I need to be part of that process. And I think not all, I mean, a lot of photographers work like that too, but some don't. Some it's like, oh, you know, you get a set designer and they, 
you know, make, build you a great set and la la. But I just, for me, that just turns me into like the monkey with the camera that I don't want to be. Like, I actually find taking the picture the least interesting part of the process. To me, that's just recording all the stuff you've done before, all the building mm. of the story. So it's very strange for me just to come at the end and just snap the picture. That's why I've always found it quite difficult to know where I fit in because I've always been like that. So, you know, being able to control every element is really integral to how successful the picture is to me. And I've I've sometimes found as well, like, you know, with stylists, you know, them turning up with a rail of clothes on the day and just trying to make like a stylish picture is not how I operate. Mm. every individual item including the clothes is really integral to how you know the story is formed so it seems weird that I wouldn't be part of that process. Did it take you a while to get to that point to kind of realise that about yourself or is it something that you kind of knew from the beginning after a few shoots that kind of frustrated you? No I mean it's, it's something I'm still discovering now I think I've always wondered because I think I've always fallen between categories I think I've, you know, I've been around for quite a long time, but I started out doing like, uh, you know, portraits for magazines and stuff. And I always found that process really hard because it was like, essentially, they'd be like, oh, go and photograph this businessman in like a boring office. And you've got 10 minutes with him and you have to like try and make an interesting picture with a grey pot plant in the corner. And like, <laughs> you know and it like that sort of pressure I mean it's sort of a good learning experience but I very often thought god I just feel like I need more control because it was so anxiety inducing to for those situations like I can do that and 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 that's partly because I've had a lot of practice of like having to think on my feet about what would make a good picture and I know how to compose a picture but I very often thought like it would be so much better if I had some kind of way of planning it a bit more and when I started to actually take a bit more control and like bring things to shoots and stuff and say, I want to do this, people were like, you know, they were open to it. And I think I've always thought like, oh, they're probably going to think I'm like weird for doing that. Whereas I feel like that was a real turning point for me that I started to try and blend the work that I've been doing on my own with the work that I've been doing commercially a bit more. Um, but it did definitely take me quite a long time. Like, I feel like that only started happening when I was in New York. That I started just bringing props and, like, weird things I found and then suggesting it to people. Whereas before, I think I just wasn't confident to do that. That was a good, a really good learning experience. And actually now, sometimes I think I I would like to go back, like, the next shoot, maybe you know the next few shoots I do I'd like to add more element of chaos into that because we've I've been working with Rotting Doom Bazaar making these very controlled shoots and I think actually it would be good to do something that was a little bit more like hard to control and just seeing what the result was instead of like planning everything down to a T. Yeah I was going to say that is everything immaculately planned before you even get on set? Well, it, if you're talking about the shoots we've been that I've been working with Rotting Dooms are at the moment, then like we've been building these people kind of models that are dressed as like objects, basically. Then yes, that's sort of I think the success of them is that they look like we just threw it together, but actually they're painfully rehearsed <laughs> <laughs> um, to the point. I mean, like so anal, like 
the sort of precision you know uh, you know we've put so much effort into that and I think that's mm. but that's the balance is making something look not look too overworked and look like it did just happen accidentally mm. but it's also you know we just did that shoot for SZ and like there's a guy dressed as a watering can and you know we we practice lots of different drops coming out the watering can they are really well thought out yeah like really well planned it's funny isn't it because I think so many people you know they can see and understand the value and work that goes into something of exceptional exceptionally high production value but when things are a little more sort of grounded in reality and obviously your work has that really kind of accessible edge it's not about glamour it's not about excess it's actually actually the opposite it's I think people don't understand that level of detail that you're talking about and how much work goes in to make those ideas or fantasies or whatever like perform and hit that exact right note that I was talking about before like there is so much work and detail that goes into getting all those elements together yeah because like if you know even the fold of like a sleeve can make or break it like in Mm. terms of looking like an object so it's impossible just there's no way you could just show up on the day and just hope for the best like and also something might look fine when you're looking at it with the naked eye but like as soon as you look at it through a camera it doesn't read um and so all these things yeah really have to be rehearsed how we operate is like high impact like low production (laughs) that's what we're going for but I bet that's so liberating right oh definitely like that's the thing we we really are you know we shoot things like when we're when we've been shooting together most of it's been shot in their flat in Rottingdean like I'll you know just go and I'll sleep on the sofa the night before and we'll watch YouTube videos and then in the morning we'll get up and like just practice how we're going to do it and then like that SZ shoot like the model came down for the day and we just shot it in their flat Luke painted the wall it is actually in a way all about the rehearsal beforehand I mean it's not always always like that but the ideas are tend to be sketched out and then the clothes and stuff are chosen precisely for those ideas. So it's not like there's not that much element of like, oh, just chuck that on there. I mean, there's a bit of that, but it's not like these things might work. It's It just feels very, it is very rigid in the way that it's planned. You used to do a lot of those documentary projects, right? Because you did that incredible um, mermaid one. Yeah. I mean, that was like, because I feel like that was sort of the more the beginning of like, me exploring things I was really actually interested in and like the mermaid project came about because I just happened upon that place and actually a lot of people have shot it since then but um I it sort of it contrasted the things that I was interested in like the idea of something being real and a bit fake and you know the whole idea about the mermaid park is that you know like they don't they said oh you can shoot you just can't shoot the mermaids like in the park without their tails on because they didn't want to shatter the fantasy for the children so like all you know the children that go to the mermaid park you know do believe these mermaids are real um and I think that's fascinating yeah and I made another project about this woman called Linda Levin who I met on the street in New York but again it was a real process for me to work out what I really wanted to do like I feel like shooting her in her apartment was a real kind of epiphany like I remember her being like on her bed on this like 
brightly colored satin she in like a weird yoga pose and shooting her and her yeah and I just suddenly was like this is more what I'm interested in kind of constructing things in reality because they were her clothes and her bedding and everything but it was just making a strange picture and she was kind of into the process as well yeah it's interesting isn't it because collaboration of all kinds is really important to you and obviously you've had a few kind of long-term collaborators over the years and then just then like you know what you're talking about when you're collaborating with subjects and, and how much sort of life that brings to the work and I wanted to talk a little bit more actually about Rotting Dean Bazaar because you guys are kind of a perfect match it feels like you're just a great meeting of minds and I wondered like how you guys actually met and ha- a little bit more about how you kind of work and build ideas together. Um, I followed Luke on Instagram, Luke Brooks. He just made these really strange like little videos and photos of like, you know, a lettuce leaf on a bottom and stuff like that. Um, and I just followed him for ages. And I think because of the algorithms was to do with because he was taught by Julie Verhoeven, who's someone I've made pictures with for a long period of time. Um, so I was like, you know, I just followed him. And then I sent him a message on Instagram and I think he got back to me about a month later and I'd even forgotten I'd sent it but (laughs) and then we we met up in King's Cross and he said oh you know I'm about to start a project with my partner James and we're gonna we're gonna be called Rotting Doom Bazaar and like you know and I think at that point yeah they were they just I don't know how long they've been together but um and so I was like, oh, well, I'll just come to Rottingdean. Why don't we try making some pictures together? Um, so, yeah, I'd never been to Rottingdean before, but <laughs> it was a nice trip. Um, <laughs> and it was quite instant, actually. That I just realised they had a, a real similar agenda to me. And it was very, like, and we've since become good friends. Like, it's actually quite weird. I probably speak to them every day. That's quite weird, isn't it? <laughs> but... Yeah, I think it was like they enjoy like making things funny and maybe a bit dark. And yeah, they have the same appreciation for objects being very particularly placed, you know, and that's the way they style things as well, which is exactly how I work. Like they'll find the exact thing to fit an idea we're talking about and also they have much more of a fashion knowledge than I do you know I know a bit about fashion but I wouldn't claim to know you know they just have good like James used to work for Kanye West and they both like done all kinds of things beforehand like Luke made stuff for Lady Gaga so good yeah like so they kind of yeah I feel like they've got a better fashion education than me and but yeah it's just been really great it's been really like meeting them has been really good because I think I was you know my child was about three when I met them and I think I was sort of coming out of the kind of the motherhood kind of thing where you feel that it's kind of overtakes you for a couple of years so it was quite it felt like good timing and it was a good time for them as well because it was sort of like the beginning of them too um I mean we both work with different people as well but I think it's just been yeah it's just and we and like even now it's like it's a good like you know like we both discuss ideas that we're doing separately with each other which is really nice as well because I think I haven't really had that I've often felt like a one-man band um so it's nice to discuss things 
in a really intense way, like how things are going to work, very specific details of things. That's been really useful for me because I haven't, yeah, I haven't 100% felt like I've had that exactly. I've had it a bit, but I think they're also into it too. So that's been really good. It's amazing. I think people don't talk about how important it is to have that alignment with of taste and sort of visual language with your collaborators. I think there's just, there has been for years, like obviously such a focus on collaboration and it is so important and can bring so much to your work, but getting it to the level that you're talking about where you're just so in sync with each other is actually really rare. It's quite a precious thing, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. I Yeah, I just feel really like, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but I do, I feel like it's really powerful for me because I hadn't really been doing that much fashion and it's only in the last few years that I've started working more in fashion. But it makes sense because of my work being quite object-based. And I think where I'd struggled working, doing shoots involving fashion before, was I always felt there was this weird clash with like the stylist or whatever, where they were tr- they needed to get this certain thing in and they were like putting, and I just didn't feel like it worked. But then I felt awkward about saying it. Whereas like, with them it's very much like I'm just like no and they're like no (laughs) but I mean (laughs) they're very involved in the entire process like we edit the pictures together and everything so it's not just me it's not a traditional relationship at all in terms of like stylist photographer art directors it all feels quite mixed in yeah and that's been really good for me because I just feel like before I just wasn't really sure which way to go with it because I wanted I was making like portraits but then yeah I wasn't sure how to to like call myself an art director or whatever because that it's like we were talking about before it's like the whole idea of an art director is people don't 100% understand what that means either so yeah, it's, it's odd isn't it I mean definitely you know 10 years ago it was much more about the photographer was there to do the technical stuff and light everything and and sort of bring to life someone else's idea. It feels like there was less focus across the whole industry in like all photographers doing personal work and and photographers being very involved in the ideas process. It was more like you just shoot whatever the you know agency art director tells you to do or the magazine photo director tells you to do. Whereas now I think you know in some ways that sounds odd because now it's so much more common to for photographers to to play a bit more of a hand in the art direction of everything that they're creating no matter whether it's personal or commercial but it's so it's so important because it really does take things to another level I think because you are you you are bringing that whole vision you're not just bringing like a technicality around the the camera you're bringing so much more sort of idea and soul to whatever it is you're making yeah exactly I mean like the, the you know like being technical is so boring to me it's funny because you know I've probably owned only about three cameras in my entire life I mean for a photographer that's quite pathetic but I mean I just it just doesn't interest me and it's funny because people like sometimes you'll get on shoots people will start asking me technical questions I don't even know the answer to and I just think it's really boring like I found at college like a lot of there was the class was quite divided into people that wanted to make interesting pictures and then people that just wanted to talk about lenses and to me it was like the least interesting thing ever it's like it's like when people when you go to a photography talk and people ask what camera the photographers oh, use don't. and it's like oh god it's so boring and like 
in the same way, like, I don't want to be a technician. It's not interesting to me. I don't want someone to come to me with, like, an idea for a magazine and just want me to execute. I mean, that does happen sometimes, but it's like, you know, I don't want to just be, yeah, the technician that comes along and just snaps away and tries to realise their idea. Like, that's, I need to be at the beginning. That For me, that's the most successful way of making pictures. So, yeah, yeah it's funny. I think yeah and that's and my technique is really quite basic on purpose you know and I I don't like having a big production I don't like having loads of lights and being really obvious like when you're I just like it to be lo-fi on purpose because it stresses me out to be honest yeah and I don't think being stressed is particularly conducive to being creative (laughs) I mean it can be but um but like yeah like when you're actually shooting like I don't like loads of people standing around that I don't know what they're there for you know I just find that people give their opinion because they feel like they need to say something when I'm working with Rotten Doom Bazaar we don't use hair and makeup it's partly because it's just more people on set and Mm. you know a lot of the time we're shooting you know real people and it just it makes people feel more uncomfortable I think so yeah that's you need that intimacy yeah I think so definitely but I think maybe I got that from starting life as a portrait photographer because I realized that you know it was really that's the most vital thing is making people feel comfortable you know Mm. it's not just about you coming along and like you know they'll give you more if they're comfortable and if they're not they you know they won't (laughs) So yeah, <laughs> you're listening to the Messy Truth conversations on photography. I think it's so great to hear you talk about your process and kind of how you have become attuned to how you make the best work because all of your visual decisions also are tightly linked to your process decisions and like the work you're making and how you kind of make that work are intrinsically linked to who you are and kind of what your vibe is and what makes you feel comfortable and how you can get into that space of making your your best work and I think people especially I speak to a lot of people when I when I'm mentoring who are just desperately trying to figure out like what is their process what are they trying to say what is their identity as a photographer but I think they're always looking outward they're looking for validation in terms of you know they see someone with a big set and a big lighting setup and that like apparently legitimizes them where actually it's so much more about looking inward and like figuring out how you make the best work that you can make by making all of these little tweaks to create yeah the best environment and best process to to kind of realize the ideas that you have I think people get so confused about that and it really is something that you just need to tune into over time and kind of keep trusting yourself yeah and I think I mean it's taken me a long time to get to that point like when I graduated it felt like oh you had to like have a studio and like have a full-time assistant you had to all look really professional and I always found that so awkward um I just never enjoyed like I don't really like having assistants on shoots because I always feel like I don't know what to say to them and I feel like I feel like they're I mean they're there and they're thinking what what kind of shot is that that looks shit (laughs) I mean you know I mean I have done before and I just I like I try to avoid it if I can because I just don't feel like it adds anything I mean it can be really helpful but creatively I find it difficult like I don't you know yeah I feel like I have to come up with jobs to tell them to do all the time Mm -hmm. um distracting 
yeah, I find it really distracting. And I think like, yeah, I think it's taken me a while to sort of have the confidence to say, I don't want to do it like that. I want you to, and I think that's the thing. I think it's like putting out there to people how you want to work before you begin something is the most important thing. And I think, yeah, it's taken me a long time to feel confident enough to do that. Like to be like, I don't want to work like that. I don't want to work in this big production way. It doesn't make it's it to me. It just feels like it costs more money and has less impact because things get watered down. It's like photography competitions, how the winners are always really boring because it's probably loads of judges in a room. They're not always really boring, but a lot of the time a photograph will win and you'll be like, that seems, but it's probably just because it kind of, manages to get through the judges without being offensive yeah (laughs) on some level you know yeah no I don't mean offensive because of like some shocking content I mean like you know you know stylistically or whatever yeah no you're exactly right yeah to me it's like if there's too many people involved in the process it just gets watered down and and you know that going back to like working people that you're creatively in tune with that's what's so nice when they 100% get what you're aiming for you know and yeah I do feel that's really rare like to be on the same page like with minute details of things like you know like oh that one hair on her head needs to curl around a bit more like I'm talking about that minute detail <laughs> and for someone to 100% understand why that would be is really yeah is really important I think yeah definitely what has it been like kind of being a working mother I have found parenthood quite probably the, well definitely the most difficult thing I've ever done which took me by surprise because I think I just assumed that I'd be like arrogantly an amazing parent but you know you just don't know how it's going to be at all and you can't imagine it till it's happening to you and it's like suddenly you've gone from being this selfish person just doing their own thing and like you know photographing people dressed as mermaids and stuff and like just (laughs) going wherever you want whenever you want and like staying out all night and sleeping in till one o'clock in the afternoon and suddenly you've got this like slug to look after (laughs) that basically just you know takes every part of your energy and it's a real fucking shock you know Mm, and it's it really is no matter who like tells you it's going to be a shock you just think yeah whatever my child's just going to fit straight into my life and I'm just going to carry on before and like when my son was born I was living in New York I lived in like a really crusty like loft building with three flatmates with one window, no washing machine, no AC in the New York summer. You know, we used to like go to sleep with like frozen bottles of water in our bed to try and stay cool. Like, (laughs) um, you know, and I just, none of my friends in New York had children. I just was like, I wondered, but you know, like the people I hung out with generally didn't. And suddenly I was like, Oh shit. Like I not oh shit I did plan to have a child at some point but it was just a bit of a shock and yeah and then basically you know this baby came along and then there's like this weird period where you kind of you sort of are still in your old life but you're pretending that you're not in this new life and like there's pictures of me and Al like you know at these private views with like a baby strapped to us and like matchsticks holding open our eyes like pretending we're still (laughs) you know with a beer 
and like or I'd have people over for dinner and then you know and then they'd stay till like one in the morning and then and then we'd wash up and then by the time we went upstairs the baby would wake up and be awake all night and or you know your friends come over and go I'm so tired and you're like literally you have no idea (laughs) (laughs) and like I think it was you know it was a real shock like and you know I just kind of thought it was going to be like a little side project but actually it was suddenly a project that was completely overtaken and the idea of like being away from you know you know I couldn't leave him Mm. at all and like I remember like when he was about two weeks old I remember getting a job um to go to Iceland or like they asked me to go to Iceland for a week and I was like actually considering it like I remember like looking at flights and thinking yeah I can do this and then I was just thinking what am I of course I can't like you know it's like you're fully you're fully delusional in that yeah. those early stages it's it, you you describe it perfectly actually it's like you're still in your old life because you haven't caught up with the fact that your new life is radically different to everything you could ever imagine no so not at all. it seems it seems feasible to like contemplate doing a job because of course you do a job but then you're like hang on a minute yeah <laughs> I mean like a little bit upside down you know I like you literally like uh, my son would never I mean this is so boring to people that aren't parents but my son would never take a bottle so I could not leave him for like longer than about an hour you know until he was about three <laughs> no 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 no. until he stopped like breastfeeding I literally couldn't leave him so like yeah I remember I mean this is madness I remember going to do a taxidermy course god knows why I did that that was the first time I went away from him for like three hours to go and do some taxidermy <laughs> um and I remember getting back and he was just been like screaming for hours and Al, my partner was like, you know, like literally at his wits end. And I'm like, you know, you just sort of do these mad things because you're just trying to like, you know, cling on to something. And I think particularly as a creative, you're quite, you are really selfish and I'm still really Mm. selfish. And I still struggle with parenthood for that reason, because you can't be selfish. You're, you know, you're, you're raising a human. You have to be kind of, you know, yeah totally available to them at all times and like the other thing I found difficult is the kind of having to join society in a way that I never anticipated because before you have a child you're very like you know you choose who you hang out with and like you go to the places you want to go out you know you you do what you want basically and suddenly you're thrust into these like social situations with parents that you have very little in common with you know or like you're sitting around a table and everyone's talking about like side returns or something or things that don't interest <laughs> you, you know, because you're not that kind of person. But you sort of have to. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you just have to join society in a way that you didn't before. And, you know, you're at baby singing groups, you know, and you're probably, you know, like I just would think, oh, God, this is literal hell. But, you know, that's what you have to do. And you know this isn't to say that I don't enjoy elements of motherhood but I have found it much harder than I anticipated it to be I really did think like yeah I thought I'd be like owning it (laughs) and um but I think in a lot of ways it also makes you amazingly more efficient because you realize you have these like windows of time and you really use those well whereas like when you look back on like all the time I feel like I wasted so much time before you know I'd have days where I had no idea what I've been doing 
Whereas now yeah. I like, now I've got this many hours and I need to get this done and I need to do that. And I think that's really like, yeah, much more positive, you know. And also it's just, it's, you know, it kind of zooms you out of your life. It means that you're less kind of, you're, yeah, you're not so centred around your every need. It kind of, it allows you to look look at the world as a whole, I think. So I think it's, it is really useful as well. But yeah, just a, a shock, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I had a very, I, I'm having a very similar experience. And But I think you're, you're exactly right in terms of that sort of expansion that it gives you as well. I think it gives you a real emotional expansion and kind of more of an empathetic expansion as well, which for me really helped me. I don't know, it really, it really changed how I thought about ideas and how I thought about connecting um, and communicating through photography because it just I guess it just broke down some of the barriers that I had before and some of the expectations that I had before and it enabled me to just I don't know just kind of think about things in a slightly more human way maybe yeah I think I mean yeah I, I think it it mean it, you do I do think it it helps you be more well it's helped me be more empathic because I, I that doesn't come naturally to me at all <laughs> that sounds really harsh but I think you're being had, a bit mean no but I've really had to work on that because I think on some level I'm I'm not empathic at all I'm quite in the way that I think I think I'm a bit ruthless not like ruthless as in like shrewd business person but I just think I do have trouble relating to how other people feel generally and I think I've really had to try and yeah teach myself to think about that a lot more and I think like yeah. my dad said which was actually quite useful he's like parenthood is not it's not a two-way street it's like you're not giving so that you get back you're giving you know and I think I was like yeah shit it's not like oh he's gonna you know I'm gonna get he's gonna give me so much back it's like you have to really work at like making that person the best person they can be you know it's not about what you're gonna get out of it and I think that's a real shock as well to, to mm. think like that it's not like they're not there to service you you know yeah. be like your you know your accessory at all <laughs> <laughs> it's very true you are someone who's been really committed to your own vision for a long time and it feels like over the last few years as you kind of mentioned before everything has kind of really crystallized and come together but I wondered over the years how have you managed to like block out the noise and kind of what your peers are doing and all that kind of messy stuff that you know can distract us because the pull of that can be really paralyzing I think yeah I mean it has been at times I think I felt you know inadequate in ways but then I've but then how can you try and be something you're not like that's that's the conclusion I've come to is that I think I I tried out trying to be like other people you know being commercially successful earlier on in their career and it just didn't fit with me because I don't think like that I'm curious as well just you know talking about insecurities around work because you are such an ideas-led photographer do you ever have like a crisis of confidence with your ideas and doubt them or, or think something isn't strong enough or are you pretty good now at kind of trusting your instincts oh I mean all the time I mean <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's just part of life isn't it questioning yeah like yeah yeah I mean that's part of like being creative isn't it it's just basically feeling massively insecure about like 
something and then putting it out there into the world and seeing how people react to it and then not being able to look at it for a few months and then looking back at it and thinking, oh, actually, it wasn't as shit as I thought it was. <laughs> no, because I feel like I've always been like that. Like when I'm in it, I find it incredibly hard to get any sort of distance. Like, but then I can look back and think, yeah, that's that's all right. Whereas like at the time when I'm making it, yeah, it's full of insecurities. But I think because when you're a creative, you're putting stuff out there and it's for people to judge you constantly. It's like in the early days when you do like portfolio reviews and go and see magazines, it's just like, it's like constantly like bringing out your diary, reading it out to people sort of, <laughs> and just, and you know, and then what if they're like, Oh, that's really boring. It's quite, it is really personal. So it is quite exhausting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, of course. I wanted to finish up by asking you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the episode, and that's what matters more to you, the experience of making the work or the final photograph? Definitely the final photograph, but I always like look at things like if I get asked to do a job or have like I always have like a sort of checklist. I think, is it going to give me a good experience? Is it going to make me some money? Or is it going to be creatively fulfilling or all of them or some of those things? And if it doesn't tick any of those, then I say no. Ultimately, yeah, I do think the image is the most important thing. But what what I was kind of trying to get at was that you can, you know, you can assess things on also having that experience because it photography allows you to have that. Mm. I actually for sure thought you would say experience because it's such an involved process for you that as you as you just pointed out kind of includes all these like funny experiences and spaces that you put yourself in to even like help generate ideas or or yeah I mean I think we were talking about before like what your parents have you know and like I was I think I said before that my dad you know like I remember my dad took us on a tour of the Paris sewer when I was like you know, probably about seven or eight. And I still remember it. And it's still, I mean, it seems like a strange thing to take your children on a tour of a sewer with like, you know, like basically a big giant river of shit. (laughs) 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 But, you know, it's like, I think it sort of made me realise that there's lots of interesting things to investigate and like you should just be open to them. And that's why I think photography is like a really fun career because it's not necessarily like you're gonna make thousands of pounds I mean you can do but like you're not gonna be like mega well well you don't always end up mega wealthy Mm. (laughs) but you know you can have so many like weird things happen like I've been to prison I've been to I mean you know shot in a prison been down a mine been to a nunnery you know strange things that I never would have got to do without being a photographer and it's yeah. like a ticket to to lots of interesting experiences. But yeah, ultimately the image is the most important thing, I do think. <laughs> so I sort of can I sort of contradicted myself there, but yeah. I am not hundred percent sure that you're sure of your answer. Yeah, but I'm I like not, it I think anyway. maybe that's the truth. That's the <laughs> truth, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Annie. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you too, Gem. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the messy truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. 
You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.